0: Let's take our Bibles together and invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, that's where we are in our Bibles this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. Now, I'm going to read the whole chapter, 30 verses. It will help you. Uh, it's, a, it's a good story. Um, I will say this PG 13. So, it's the Bible. So I won't make apologies for that. Just be forewarned. Genesis chapter 38. Let's give our full attention to God's word being read. It happened at the time, at that time, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Hezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the tent at the entrance to Enayam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and says, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, Where is the cult proti- prostitute who is at am at the roadside and they said no cult prostitute has been here so he returned to Judah and said I have not found her also the men also the men of the place said no cult prostitute has been here and Judah replied let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at you see I sent this young goat and you did not find her about three months later Judah was told Tamar your daughter-in-law has been immoral When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb and when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me as we uh, look more closely at this passage. Let's let's ask for the Lord's help. This word, O God, is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. It is living, it is active, It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It is how we know the way of righteousness. It is how we know salvation. And so, Father, in this time of proclaiming your word, I pray that your spirit would inhabit this proclamation. Cause what comes to our ears and is planted on all of our hearts, Father, cause that to be more than the words of a mere man. And Father, as the messenger of this, I ask for a special measure of grace that Jesus himself would be glorified and your people would be edified. So grant us this, Father for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Well, I know that uh, many of you live in this city, this area, because the Air Force or or one of the branches of the military brought you here. may not have been your choice. Having been stationed here, I know some of you chose to remain or or return after uh, retirement or separation. Uh, Of course, I live here because the church called me to come over 18 years ago. And before that, I could never have imagined living here. Moving was a really big deal to us. It changed the trajectory of my children's lives, I'm sure of that. And you know this when when people consider a move and there's employment opportunities that come into the thinking, there's the amenities, there's schools. And and I hope as as you've thought about your own moves as families and Well, you're here, (laughs) so. um, But I think if if you are called to move again, and I know that's uh, on the horizon for some of you very soon, I hope that a major consideration you're thinking about that is finding a church. Well, as I was thinking about the passage before us, it it became apparent to me that we're being shown that it mattered to God where his people live. It matters to God where his people live. Now, in the previous chapter we dealt with this uh, last week, uh, Joseph had been... Uh, the second youngest brother of the the sons of Jacob, Israel. Joseph had been sold as a slave and he had ended up in Egypt. And we know from reading the end of the story that Israel and his family, Jacob and his family, will eventually join him there. But in this chapter, as we give our focus to chapter 38, we're we're given a glimpse into uh, life in Canaan for the family of Israel. And let's just say, They don't look like a people who are set apart and striving with God. Rather, they look like people who are ignoring God. Now, that's going to change, and by God's providence, the Lord will ensure that it does. Now, there's a promise, a promise that had been given to Abraham. We talk about this almost every week when we're thinking about this part of Genesis that Abraham, but for the most part his descendants, would ultimately possess the land of Canaan. So that's where they are. They're in the land of Canaan, but they don't possess it. It isn't theirs per se. They are strangers. They are sojourners in this land belonging to the Canaanites. It will be theirs one day, but not yet. It will be theirs when they are able to dispossess the Canaanites. And at this, at this point, they are in no position to do that. What they need is some formation time in Egypt. Now, as we look at this narrative and how it fits into the, the larger picture of God setting apart a people for his own possession, what I want us to do is, is see that God cares about where you live. And I want you to see what he is doing to give you an eternal home with him. That's what I want. That's my aim this morning. I want us to see that God cares about where you live. And I want you to see what he is doing to give you an eternal home with him. So I'm going to consider this, this chapter just under two headings. I couldn't find a third. I know that's my custom. but So we're going to go with two this morning, all right? And and they are these: corruption and rescue. Corruption and rescue. Well, first the corruption. When uh, politicians and judges, when they take bribes or pervert justice, when when people who are entrusted with leadership responsibilities for the good of people use that to enrich themselves, we say they are corrupt. We use the term that way. But you know, corruption is also something that is described something that is contaminated when some foreign substance or idea alters the intended beauty or usefulness of a thing. So, for example, if you have a picnic tomorrow, if you're eating outside, and you leave the potato salad in the sun too long, don't eat it. Good advice, I think. Don't eat it. Why? It'll probably make you sick. Why? Because it gets corrupted with with bacteria, right? course this is why I've told you this before this is why Kathy tells me that that I shouldn't eat leftovers that have been left in the fridge too long you know there's there's a point now we don't always agree on that stale date and I'm just saying even though we disagree I'm standing here before you so (laughs) just saying I think my judgment has proved to be correct but we, we get this right things can be corrupted by bacteria And people can be corrupted by ideas and values. And I take it that's what happened with Jacob's family as we look at this text. We we see that in the scripture that is before us. And I'll just kind of go over the the, the sections that we've covered and give some descriptions just to remind you. Verses 1 through 5, Judah left his brothers at Hebron and went to the lowlands. Really, it's a place that was north and to the west, to a place called Adullam. There he befriended an Adullamite, a a, a resident of the lowlands. His name was Hira. He is separated from his father. He had separated from his family, family. And I would say this, just as a commentary, he had also separated himself from his father's values and the moral boundaries of God's promises. And there, while in this place, away from his brothers, there he saw a daughter of a Canaanite. The Canaanite's name is Shua. The daughter, we're not told the name, but he took her and married her. They have three sons. So we're, we're covering a, a swath of history here. They had three sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah, born in a, in a town nearby, Hezib, which is slightly south and west of Adullam. doesn't matter. Verses 6 through 11, time is moving pretty quickly here. Judah then finds a wife for Ur. Her name's Tamar, and she's going to factor in this story. Now, she's likely a Canaanite. She's likely, or or possibly a Philistine. Not entirely sure. But we're told in verse 7 that Ur was wicked. So the Lord just put him to death. Now, we're not told what his wickedness was. We're not told what his sin was. But maybe he was just like the Canaanites. The Lord determined that he was not redeemable. And that leaves Tamar childless. Well, the next thing that happens Judah tells his son, Onan, you perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this would seem odd to us culturally, right? But it's a practice that was, uh, this practice was carried out in ancient cultures because inheritance in land mattered. And this practice was later codified in the law, given at Sinai, So I'm just I'll take you to there. Deuteronomy 25 if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger her husband's brother Shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel now, what this is called is the Leverite Marriage Law. Perhaps you've heard this. And a form of this is later exemplified in the Ruth Boaz story. Elimelech had died. Naomi's children had died. Her sons, Mahalon and Chilion. There, Boaz, who is the, the relative, not, not a brother-in-law, but a more distant relative, but certainly in the family tree, There he is called a kinsman redeemer and he effectively brings offspring through his marriage to Ruth to the family, thus protecting the family. And incidentally, this law was the basis of uh, an argument or a challenge that Sadducees had brought to Jesus. They were trying to trap him. And in, in his own application of biblical law, the Sadducees had proposed this sort of scenario where there were seven brothers and each of them died without, a, without uh, offspring. Thus, the woman had married successively seven times and there was no offspring. And the question the Sadducees asked was, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Of course, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They just simply wanted to trap Jesus. This is the basis for this. It's called the Leverite Marriage Law. Lever is simply L-E-V-I-R. That's an English way of uh, expressing a Latin word, which simply means brother-in-law. So there you have that that foundation. Now, verse 9. Onen seems to agree, or probably more accurately, it really doesn't have a choice in the matter. Verse 9 euphemistically says, whenever he went into his brother's wife, and that indicates that sexual union and the action that he took or in fact did not take is not stated euphemistically, and all will be general. He would simply ensure that she did not conceive. Now his motivation here was was that the offspring would not be reckoned to him. That offspring would be reckoned to his dead brother. And he didn't didn't want to dilute his own opportunity for inheritance. So it was a sin against the Lord, because what it did was mocked marriage and one of the proper purposes of the institution of marriage, offspring. He mocked it by his actions, and it revealed his own covetousness, right? If he could deny his brother offspring, more stuff for him. It was certainly dishonoring to his dead brother, and it was, and it was dishonoring to Tamar. Her reasonable expectation was that she would conceive a child in marriage. And so this was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So like his brother, the Lord put him to death as well. Now we've got a situation here. Tamar is now twice widowed and she is still childless. And Judah tells her, well, go live as a widow in your father's house until such a time as his third son, Shelah, comes of age. But we see in the text, he has no intention because perhaps he's superstitious. Well, if I give Shelah, he's going to die too. This girl is trouble. But he gives her the impression that he's going to fulfill this responsibility. The day never comes. Verses 12 through 23. And we're moving through history pretty quickly. Judah's wife died. And it just tells us in the course of time, not really any time stamp on that. But it's really after a period of mourning after his wife died, he just simply goes to carry on business, which involved checking on his sheep shearers in a place called Timnah. Now, Tamar, she was told about the journey somehow. And so she dresses herself in the manner of a prostitute and she positions herself where she knows he is on the road to Timnah at the the city gate of this town called Anayim. Now, in her mind, she's going, okay, Shelah's grown up. He's not my husband. I got to do something, right? That's her reason. Now, she's veiled here. Judah does not recognize her. So Judah propositions her. They agree on a young goat for for her services. And he agreed to provide that later. And what she wants is a pledge. Well, what certainty do I have that you're going to bring me the young goat? He says, what do you want? And she asks, give me your signet, your cord and your staff. And that signet was that unique identifier, really the means by which he would transact any sort of business. And we could equate it today with a, a personal ID, which if you're carrying it, that's you. Picture matches the ID. You can do business with that. So he gives that to her in a pledge. He needs this back. So it's a good, solid pledge. After this encounter, Tamar puts on her widow garments and returns home. Judah sends his friend Hiram to make good on the the pledge, but the woman's nowhere to be found. And the locals know of no such cult prostitute. So, just to summarize this, Er, Onan, both wicked. Lord puts them to death. Tamar's desire for offspring, right, she comes up with this plan that involves incest. It's like, who thinks of this stuff? Well, these people. This is a righteous desire, but executed in, in a most wicked way. Tamar dresses as a prostitute, and get this, believing she will have success, and enticing judah now if you just pause there for a moment it's not hard to imagine that it was known to tamar that judah frequented the cult prostitutes or else why would she even think that she would have success in this and and really as we think about judah what business did judah a son of the covenant what did he have what business did he have going to a prostitute and indeed even more so, as we think about Canaanite culture, if he thought her to be a cult prostitute, he was not only involved in an immoral practice, but an idolatrous act of worship in the manner of the Canaanites who sought the favor of fertility gods through their own evil fleshly acts. Just for a little history in the Canaanites, I, I found um, some writings by an apologist named Clay Jones. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but He's a visiting prophet Talbot Seminary in California. He says this: We should expect that if the Canaanites worshipped a god who rapes his sister and has ongoing sexual relationship with his daughter and sexually humiliates his mother, that the Canaanites would ape their god's behavior. It looks like Judah and Tamar are behaving in a very Canaanitish way. Now, as we consider. Judah, his association with Hiram and his family, it looks like they've adopted these Canaanite practices and clearly, clearly there is a problem. The family of Israel has been corrupted. Corrupted. We've seen this before, haven't we? Perhaps you'll recall back in Genesis 19, Abraham's nephew, Lot, he pitched his tent close, in close proximity to Sodom His family was corrupted by that. And if you remember that story, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot had to be rescued. The Lord had set him apart for salvation. He wasn't burned up in the city. But get this, after seeking offspring, both of his daughters resorted to an incestuous act with their father. And this will happen again. This proximity to evil cultures this proximity by the people of god this connection that they have with those living around them it will happen again during the 40-year period just one example the 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness the israelites became morally lax just before they were about to take possession of canaan this happened and this is in numbers while israel this is numbers 25 1-3 through 3. while israel lived in shittim The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. More in that text, in Numbers, describes the immoral practices between the Israelite men and the Moabite women. So it matters where God's people live. It matters where you live live and would certainly matter for the Israelites after they crossed in to possess the land of Canaan. Now, applying this, if you belong to the Lord, it matters where you live. Now, I don't mean so much in a physical sense, like on this street or that town, but what I mean is where you feel at home. We live in the world as believers in Jesus. We live in the world. And Jesus intends for us to be salt and light in this decaying and darkened world. We're to reflect that to the world around us. So the solution we're talking about here is not to flee to a compound and shut out the world, but if you keep close company with the people who deny Christ and if you do not have the protection and encouragement of a home base, that is, a local church, then you're at risk. You're at risk. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthian believers. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. He's clearly stating that there's this connection. Bad company is going to do something. So where you live, I'm talking about where you live is whose company you value the most, whose opinion matters the most to you, whose values you want to imitate. And that's reflected, that's always reflected in our most important relationships, right? Whether that's marriage or business partnership or your closest friends. With with professing Christians, I've seen this all the time, moral drift happens. It happens all the time. And it happens in very public and private ways. And perhaps you've, you've read the stories of, of high-profile Christian artists or, or even preachers who've become famous. And the word they use, they are deconstructing, right? They deconstruct. In other words, they, they reevaluate the faith that they once had and they, they sort of say, well, that, that's not me anymore. They deconstruct. But I take it that it's primarily motivated because they love the affirmation of the culture they love the applause and the praise of the people that matter the most to them rejecting what the Bible says for example what the Bible says about marriage about sexuality about human life those are just the the cultural hot points these days right and the culture, as these former deconstructing, now Christians, as they adopt these new attitudes, there's the culture saying, yeah, you're now enlightened. You're with it. What took you so long. But these people who deconstruct, they don't long hold on to anything else that the Bible teaches, including the exclusivity of salvation by God's grace alone in Christ alone through faith alone. And I'm sure you know people, and perhaps some in our own families. People used to profess to be believers, but they've capitulated to the culture. They have a worldly view of love, for example. And they equate love with acceptance and affirmation of someone's personal, moral, bodily autonomy. And they misapply Jesus' teaching about judging others. But these quasi-religious arguments reveal simply, simply their that they're in rebellion against God. The Bible gives us very, very clear warning. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I'm not saying We should treat the world like enemies and get ready for a fight. But we have to think of the world in the right perspective. Have compassion. Be kind. Be respectful. Be ready with an answer for your own faith, as Peter says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. So I'm not saying disengage. But know that you're not to be like them. You're not to adopt their practices. Find your anchor in the Word of God, not in what people think is popular. And this, brothers and sisters, will get increasingly more difficult. We know that. To stand in the truth of the Word of God, you will be called a bigot, You'll be called a homophobe. You'll be called misogynistic. You'll be called narrow, ignorant, a rube, whatever names. But the difference between the people of God and the people of the world is who their God is. And our God is the God revealed to us in the scriptures. And if he is God, then we submit to him in everything. Their God is themselves. And they just make it up. They decide what they want to believe because they're in charge. So you can't have it both ways. If your primary allegiance is to God and to his word, it's going to put you at odds with the world. That's just how it works. Paul, quoting from both uh, prophets and the law, he exhorted the church at Corinth, and and they were were struggling with this, right? He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? It's a rhetorical question, none. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Says the Lord so it matters who you date it matters who you marry it matters who you allow to have a say in your financial commitments it matters where you live that is to say it matters where your heart is to paraphrase Jesus what you treasure the most is where your heart will be so if you are in Christ today if that is you understand who you are remember where you came from be clear on what is your purpose in the world and know how you should behave. Those four things, who you are, remember where you came from, what's your purpose, how to behave. This is summarized, 1 Peter 2, 9. Listen, who you are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is God's, here's the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember where you came from. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How do you behave? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And here's the thing. Not right now. On the day of visitation. At the end of time, if you've lived in an upright way in the world as a follower of Jesus, it'll be at the end of time that they'll look back on you and go, you were right. And they will admit that to their own horror. Corruption. We must avoid it. Well, The second word uh, heading I have here is rescue. Rescue. Now, someone who, who can't swim and who falls into the water knows that he needs someone to throw the life preserver. They get that. But, but like the proverbial frog in the kettle, there are ways that people can be in grave danger and yet be oblivious to the peril like the frog in the kettle as the heat comes up eventually it's just boiled and dies but it doesn't know maybe you read or heard the, in the news that that story of three American tourists they died in the Bahamas and the cause we've just recently found out was asphyxiation from carbon monoxide and we know this we we have the detectors in our houses right put that thing right near the furnace or in the kitchen They were enjoying this this nice Caribbean vacation while there was this silent, odorless killer lurking in their hotel room. They went to sleep and never woke up. They were having fun. They were just doing their vacation, living their life, clueless to the danger. Now, as I've already made the case, and I think the scripture makes it clear, living in Canaan, the family of Israel needed to be rescued. They were living their lives unaware of the danger. It was a moral carbon monoxide, if you will. And clearly, by the example of Judah and his sons, they were in danger of abandoning the promises of God. They were in danger of just melding into Canaanite culture with its idolatrous and immoral practices. That was the danger. Now, as we look ahead, there's going to be a famine in the land, and that's, that's going to cause them physical danger. They will soon be rescued. They will be driven to Egypt. Joseph has been sold into Egypt. He's going to provide a place for them there. Joseph will pave the way for Jacob, Israel's entire family, to be saved. Like I said, we'll get to that story in weeks ahead, but I would just want you to consider, just touch on this, how life in Egypt taught them to live like people set apart. Joseph, again, I'm skipping to the head of the story, Joseph settled them in the land of Goshen. This was away from Egyptian culture. The Egyptians weren't any more moral or upright than the Canaanites, but they needed to be provided for in Egypt. Plenty of food because Joseph had arranged it, and they were settled in the land of Goshen, and they were put in Goshen because Egyptians found the fact that Israel, the Israel tribes, that they, because they were shepherds, that was loathsome, that was like, well, we got to get near the shepherds. Put them out there. Pharaoh says, well, you can care for my sheep too, but just don't touch us. Don't come near us. We're clean people. So that was helpful. <laughs> that was useful. They learned to live set apart. They learned to depend on one another. They learned to be separate from Egyptian culture. But, but a physical and cultural rescue would not be enough. Embedded in the story of Judah's incestuous relationship with Tamar was the promise of eternal hope. It's embedded there. And that hope can only be seen in retrospect. We can look back and we can see it there. Let me show you where it is. Now, Judah never found the woman to pay for his services to the so called cult prostitute, he never retrieved his signet quarter staff. And rather than investigate any further, Judah, he just chose to let the matter rest, fearing, get this, that the incident would bring him shame. <laughs> you think? Judah, you think it'll bring you shame? But even thinking about it more, it was shame for having lost his signet. Probably not shame for having used a prostitute. Anyway, three months later, it's reported to him that, that Tamar is pregnant. Verse 24, Judah concluded that the appropriate punishment for her immorality was death by burning. <laughs> now you can just see the irony of this, can't you? What a double standard. Three months ago, he cavorted with a woman he thought to be a cult prostitute. And he is morally outraged? And Burning? He should at the same time surrender his own body to the judgment pyre. Well, before she's brought in to face Judah's judgment, Tamar sends Judah his signet, cord, and staff implicating him in her immorality. You think, what a reversal. Jim was, and this morning in Sunday school, Jim Amhoff was talking about just the, the greatest dramas are, are written in the scripture and Hollywood just borrows them. Well, this is one of those moments like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Can't make this stuff up. Well, Judah declares, verse 26, that Tamar is more righteous. And he gets it now because he did not give her to Shelah in marriage. And of course, more righteous is a relative term. It's comparative Judah himself was quite unrighteous, and certainly Tamar was no paragon of holiness. But Judah realized that he had put Tamar in a difficult position. And the act, it was immoral, but she fulfilled a righteous desire. Again, she fulfilled it in an unrighteous way. It was a, it was a moral mess. And, and how could this scenario be the cause for their rescue? It's true that Judah's line was saved physically through the sinful act on his part and on the part of Tamar. Now, got to be clear here, just because some good comes out of evil never justifies the evil, right? We we get that. It's an under right understanding of providence. This is how God enfolds human actions, both good and evil, into his grand plan. It never justifies the evil action, but God does something in it. He accomplishes a good. Just as an aside, just in these days when the abortion matter is so much front and center in the news, you know the reason for it. So many babies are conceived outside of the marriage covenant. So many babies are conceived when it seems just so very inconvenient. But we must say this. Sinful conception does not equal illegitimate life. Right? A sinful conception does not equal an illegitimate life. All babies, however conceived, they are precious lives afforded all of the dignity of having been created in the image of God. I mean, that's why Christians should be pro-life. Anyway, that's just an aside. Beyond the immediate effect of of Judah's family tree continuing through this pregnancy and birth, what what we have to do is look beyond this to, to the greater story of God's saving purpose. There's a greater story. It was originally revealed in the curse that Adam and Eve Witnessed or were present to. It was the promise of a seed, an offspring who would right the wrongs brought about by man's rebellion. It's Genesis 3.15. That, that seed would one day bring a fatal blow to the head of the serpent. And so from Adam and Eve to Seth, down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then all the way to King David, then beyond David to David's greater son, the divine king, the forever anointed one of God, Jesus. This path from Abraham to David would pass through Judah. Now, Tamar is about to give birth. And it was discovered that there were twins. And the younger one, by moments, Perez, even fought in the womb for this place of preeminence, really, I would say, foreshadowing his place in the royal line of Judah. Zerah, we're told in the text, put his hand out first, and the midwife tied this scarlet cord. So he was indicated as the firstborn, but Perez was fully delivered first. And the midwife then declared, what a breach you have made for yourself, which means he broke through and supplanted his brother. And so the royal significance of Judah would ultimately be revealed at the end of Genesis. We'll see this when we get to chapter 49. And that path would be through Perez. I'll read from Ruth, just giving the genealogy. Ruth 4, 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz who married Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now for no no other reason than the unmerited grace of God, the line of Judah was preserved. God took what was what had been corrupted by by moral compromise. He took what had been compromised. There was rebellion. There was sin. And through that, through that amazingly ushered in the very one who would be the reason for rescuing them in the first place. The seed of the woman promised in the garden through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, David, Jesus. He is the very reason why, going all the way back, that Judah was rescued. In fact, the purpose for God setting any of these apart was ultimately to reveal the last Adam, the perfect son of David, the Word of God who became flesh and who was and is God, The Christ Jesus, God's salvation. God has gone, just look at the arc of scripture. God has has gone to great lengths in human history to reveal his son. And with each story in the Bible, we're given a, a greater and more glorious picture of the son of God. And Israel and Judah would be saved, not primarily because of Joseph going to Egypt, but because God could and would forgive their sins and the sins of all his own, including yours and mine. He's done that through the seed of Seth, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, through David, to Jesus. He's done that through Jesus who died. And he died to forgive sexual immorality, incest, prostitution, coveting. Selfishness, hatred, idolatry, and if we should at any moment think that we're better, self righteousness. He died to forgive that as well. And I hope you see that that's good news for us. Even if your life decisions have been as tawdry as Judah's, there is forgiveness at the cross of Christ. There's forgiveness. This is a pretty ugly list of sins. So where you're sitting, where you're listening, watching, you might feel like there's too much, too much to forgive, too much evil, too much wickedness. There is not. There is not too much sin that the cross of Christ will not cover it. So confess it. Confess it to the Lord. Look to Jesus. In your mind's eye, picture him there on the cross. And there, heaped upon his body, is every vile thing that you've ever done, that you've ever thought, that you ever will do. He died, he took it into the grave. He took the eternal consequence away for that sin. He took it from you if you've trusted in him. So if you have not, if you have not received Christ's forgiveness, look to the cross and receive it today. And if you have, rejoice in this truth. If you're in Christ today, by faith, you have been rescued from your sin. You have been set apart, but this is not your own doing. It is all of God's grace to you. He was gracious to Israel. He was gracious to Judah, and he is gracious to you. God told Abraham that he would, his people would possess the land of Canaan. It would be theirs to dwell with God and be his people. It mattered to God where they lived. But that would not be the final destination for the people of God. For all who have been set apart by God through faith in the Son of God, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, he, he said it himself, he is preparing a place for us, an eternal home in his father's house. That's John 14. So it matters to God where you will live for eternity. And it matters to God where you live now in preparation for that day. And so because, because you have been rescued, be separate, be holy, by God's grace and power, seek to be the kind of person who will dwell with the Lord Jesus forever. Let's pray. Father, we are, in so many ways, we are like Judah. We've heard your promises. We've embraced your promises. And we are easily Distracted And so we thank you for your word that, that draws our minds back to your promises and the hope that you have for us in your Son. Teach us as your people to be to live those lives as set apart people, not melding with our present-day Canaanite culture, but indeed being set apart even while we interact, holding out for them, in our own witness, the hope of rescue from eternal consequences of having rebelled against you. So God, we pray, be gracious to us and bless us that your name may be known throughout the earth through us. We ask it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.